we're back into Acts this morning, Acts 17, where we last left Paul and Silas. You might remember they were in Philippi. They had been beaten. They had been imprisoned. There was an earthquake. The prison doors open. Chains fall off. Crazy things are happening. The jailer rushes in. He's about to take his life. Paul and Silas stop him. They say, no, 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 we're still, we're still here. The jailer is so astounded by this that he says, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I, I need to do to get on, on your guys' team here? And Paul and Silas teach him about Jesus, gets baptized, him and his whole household that very night. Uh, the next day, the city authorities in Philippi say, you guys need to leave now. Paul and Silas go, nah, not so fast. We're Roman citizens. We're not going to go away that nicely. So uh, they kind of apologize, escort them out. Um, but, uh, but this is kind of what Paul and Silas do everywhere they go. They cause trouble, right? <laughs> that's, what the, that's what the gospel does. The gospel turns, turns things upside down, turns people upside down, turns societies upside down. And a lot of people love that. Some people, not as much. And it just happens over and over again. It happens again in Thessalonica, the city where they go next. So let's pray, uh, and then we'll read uh, Acts 17. Jesus, I thank you already for this morning. I just, I praise you. I thank you, Lord, for all of those here uh, who have gone upstairs, who, who uh, serve so faithfully, so willingly, and for the chance this morning to celebrate that. Oh, Lord, we're so thankful. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the body for all of these different gifts and abilities you have blessed the body with. And we pray that you would use us, work through us, Lord, to make your name known in this place. And I pray that you would do that even right now this morning, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would build us up, encourage us, equip us, Lord, for the work that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 17, verses 1 to 9. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So we're going to do is we're going to we're going to go through this story a little bit, uh, kind of piece by piece, in some detail. And then we'll go back and look at what I see as being at the heart of this story. So starting kind of from, from the beginning, Paul and Silas and the gospel buddies, as we're calling them, they leave Philippi, they travel southwest through a couple of cities there, Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they don't stop there. They don't, uh, they don't stop to plant churches or to preach, it seems. And my guess is it's because Paul knew that he couldn't go everywhere, that he needed to focus on certain places 
that would become gospel hubs, gospel centers, and that the word would kind of spread from those places. So he's got his mind set on Thessalonica, which when you, when you see pictures of Thessalonica, it's not surprising that he would do that. Can we get the picture of the beach up there? The tension, the anticipation. There it is. Well, that's bad resolution. That's on me, but... You see what I mean? I would go, I'd be aiming for that too. I'd be like, God, I think they need a five-year stay, these guys. I think I gotta be there for a long time. Uh, Thessalonica was right on the coast. Uh, so a beautiful place, obviously. And it was called the mother of Macedonia by some Greek poets. Uh, probably up to 100,000 people, which was a pretty significant city at that time. So again, a, ma a major center. It makes sense that they're gonna go there. Now Luke highlights, mainly highlights his ministry on, in the synagogue on three different Sabbath days, uh, which I, I just think like sometimes people think, uh, you know, that must have been all that Paul did, right? He, he preached or taught for three Sundays or Saturdays, and then otherwise he just probably hung out at the beach, right? It's like pastors, what do you do, right? Like I, I, I talk for like 30, 40, 50 minutes. Some of you probably think I make up half the things on the spot. I haven't even planned most of this. What am I doing for the rest of the week, right? But we know that Paul did, and I do more things than that too, but we know that Paul did more than that because of what Paul writes to the Thessalonians a few years later. So it's interesting. You can look at 1 Thessalonians and you could kind of like trace some of the stuff you read back into his, his time here in Thessalonica. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, Paul says, the gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. See, when Paul came to a place, yeah, he, he taught in the synagogue, but, but he also lived among them. There was the witness of his, of his life. He was interacting with people. And we read about the, the gospel coming with power, which some people would suggest indicates a ministry of healing, of other miraculous signs, which is what we see at other points in the book of Acts. So all of this stuff is going on. But again, Luke focuses on the synagogue because this is Paul's pattern. Whenever he goes to a place is that he starts, he starts with the Jews, he starts with the synagogue, he starts by opening up the scriptures to show them Jesus. Um, now, practically, you can kind of understand why he does that uh, because if you've got really, really good news to share, like, um, like when Carolyn and I, you know, would, would announce to people that we were expecting a child, which is not an undercover announcement for today, by the way, just to be clear. Uh, we would first tell the people closest to us, the people that we thought were most invested in this news, and, and then you share it with social media with people you haven't seen in 25 years and probably don't even remember who you are, right? You do that afterwards. And so Paul goes to the people whose story this is, whose promises these are, who should be the most invested in this, and, and then he goes from there. And theologically, in the Bible, in Genesis 12, God blesses Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a blessing. Starts with Abraham and his descendants, goes from there. Paul's just kind of following that pattern. First the Jews, first the synagogue, then out from there. Okay, that's kind of, uh, that's, that's what Paul is doing. He opens up the scriptures, shows them how Jesus is the Messiah, and the response is, is strong. Some of the Jews believe, uh, a lot of the God-fearing Gentiles, we see again and again, this is the, maybe the most fertile harvest field, har mission field in, uh, in the early church. A lot of women believe, 
Luke really highlights the important role that women play in the early church. But again, we know from 1 Thessalonians, the response was even wider than this. Because a few verses later in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. As in a lot of the converts were idolaters. They were Gentiles who had no commitment to Israel's God. So, so Paul is sharing this good news about Jesus as Messiah and people are hearing it. It's, it's fruitful. They're responding to it. Lord, that it would be in our day as well. So he's, uh, he's sharing this. And as it often does in Acts, it arouses a lot of jealousy among the Jewish leaders. First of all, they don't, they don't agree that, that Jesus is the Messiah. And they probably also chafe against against Paul, a kind of a poaching potential Jewish converts, right? I mean, he's, he's poaching these God-fearing Gentiles. He's, 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 he's taking them, like if I was, or if, if there was a church that kind of got planted somewhere in the area and had a very different kind of teaching and you all left the bridge to go there, I, I'd be struggling with this a little bit. Actually, I, had a, I, had a, I woke up from a dream last, like this morning, where a whole bunch of people were telling me how they were so much more blessed by some other church than ours, and then nobody had shown up to get their umbrellas. That was all part of the one, the one thing. There were like 20 people here. Those are the only people that got umbrellas. You had a lot of leftover umbrellas. I don't know which part was the worst, but anyways. Uh, it's understandable, right, that they would be filled with this kind of this jealousy and this anger. Now, what they do is that they, they go to the marketplace and they find some bad characters some rabble-rousers, some hooligans. They go, you want to start a mob? And they're like, yeah, we want to start a mob. And so they start a mob, uh, which is, is just a teensy bit off for people who have been told in the scriptures to be holy as God is holy, right? It's just a little, it's a little bit off. Uh, like my old uh, friend and mentor, Bruce Milne, says, once personal hurt and deeply felt envy are in the driving seat, Moral and religious restraints soon become dispensable. You know, once, once that, that they, they get triggered, it's kind of like all bets are off. And what's ironic is that they, they form this mob and they start rioting. And their accusation is that Paul and Silas, who are teaching about Jesus, are troublemakers. And you're like, do you see, do you see yourselves? <laughs> do you see what you guys are doing? But this is kind of human nature, isn't it? This is, this is what we see again and again. I mean, imagine with me for a moment, of course this would never happen, but imagine with me for a moment that let's say the news media uh, dismissed, you know, destructive riots a couple of years ago as fi mostly peace, fiery but mostly peaceful. Just imagine with me that that happened and then spent two years covering exhaustively every detail of the events of January 6th. That would never happen. But just imagine, it did. Now, I'm not agreeing with the events of January 6th. I'm just saying this is what we see again and again. One side exonerating themselves as troublemakers while magnifying the badness on the other side. The pot calling the kettle black, right? We see it again and again and again. Now, oftentimes, it works. It works in this case. The crowds get, the crowds get riled up. And uh, in this charge that they bring against Paul and Silas, that they're guilty of sedition against Caesar, 
They're kind of organizing a revolt. People get really riled up by that. They storm Jason's house. Jason is a Greek name. He's probably a God-fearing Gentile who, um, uh, who, who came to faith in Jesus, is hosting the, the believers in his home. And so they, they storm his house. Eventually, they make him post-bond, which probably means that he has to make a promise or a pledge of some kind. Maybe he says, uh, we, us Christians, aren't going to cause trouble. We promise not to cause a revolt. And, and probably includes getting Paul and Silas out of Thessalonica. This is, this is what happens to Paul over and over again. He's got good news. A lot of people respond. But the authorities, they just don't want to have anything to do with it. And they're just, he's just getting kicked out of one city after the next, after the next. You know, that's apparently a mark of approval. If you can get kicked out of North Vancouver, guys, you know, you're, you're doing well, apparently. You're following in Paul's footsteps. So those are kind of the, that's the, the overview of the story. They head to the next city, Berea, which we'll look at next week. But I want, to, I want to spend the rest of this morning looking at what I think is at the heart of this story, at the heart of both Paul's teaching as well as at the heart of the crowd's accusation. Uh, it's, it's that Jesus is king. That's what we were singing earlier. Jesus is king. But there's a way of misunderstanding that, and there's a, a right way, I think a truer, more biblical way of understanding that. And so let's start, with a, let's start with a misunderstanding. Let's go back to Acts 17 and look at how this is misunderstood. Again, the charge from the mob is that they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Uh, the decree that they may have been referring to was a law that Caesar Augustus had passed about 40 years before this that made it illegal to predict the changing of emperors or, the, or to predict the death of an emperor. So no political polling allowed in first century Rome. You were not, you were not to predict what was going to happen politically. That was seen as a dangerous and subversive thing, understandably. And that's the charge against Paul, is, is that he is engaging in speech that seems to imply a changing of the king, a changing of the ruler, and that, that's not going to be tolerated. Um, now this is, it's understandable that they would they would, they would think that because Paul is teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is a term, Greek word Christos or Christ, and it means anointed one. It has to do with kingship through and through. It's a word that has to do with kingship. And for the Thessalonians, the Gentiles especially, the only category of kingship they have is the Roman emperor. Like that's their whole, that's their whole kind of paradigm. And so if you're talking about a king, they're thinking, well, it's obviously a king like Caesar. It's got to be a king in competition with Caesar. And you look at some of the other things that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians, uh, and, and you can kind of get the sense of why people would have thought that Paul was advocating for anti-Roman, uh, like, like a revolt. By the way, I forgot to mention, Thessalonica was, um, it was a free city. So the Romans had said, you guys are so awesome you can uh, kind of work, they're still under Roman rule, but you can govern yourselves according to Greek customs. And so Thess Thessalonica was a famously loyal city to Rome. They were a very pro-Roman city. That's why this, this gets so severe here. Anyways, uh, in 1 Thessalonians, so we've already looked at how Paul talks about them turning from idols. Those idols, those Roman gods, 
if you worship them, that was kind of how you showed your loyalty, showed that you were part of this thing, that you were in step. If you're turning away from those, you're not worshiping the Roman gods. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're a traitor. You're, you're being countercultural. That's, that's not looked upon well. Um, in, the very, in the very next verse, um, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 1, um, Paul talks about the Son of God talks about Jesus being the son of God. Here's the thing about this, that in Thessalonica, there was a temple to Caesar Augustus. And the the devotion, the inscription to Caesar Augustus was that he was son of God. Because Julius Caesar, Augustus's father, had been deified, had been seen as a god. So Caesar Augustus has a temple devoted to him as son of God in Thessalonica. And here's Jesus, perhaps in Thessalonica, teaching about Jesus being the son of God. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about a kingdom. He's teaching about a kingdom. Again, that's going to be subversive. That's going to push against uh, the Thessalonians' devotion to Rome. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul warns against a false sense of, of peace. And, and one of the things the Roman emperor was so proud of was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that had been imposed on the Roman Empire from the top down. And so in so many ways, you could just see if Paul teaches the things he writes about in his letter to the Thessalonians, how it gives ammunition to anybody who wants to paint Paul as a, a, an anti-Roman rebel. By the way, as a a bit of a side note, it's incredible how we as humans do this, isn't it? How we can kind of create this narrative. We can pick different pieces and create this story that isn't actually true. Um, Years ago, before we had kids, Carolyn and I lived with her grandmother for a period of time. And there was something going on with her uh, physiologically, psychologically, physically, whatever, it's the whole deal. Uh, Because she felt like the house was constantly shaking. And she thought it was because we were playing super, super loud music. And then we were having these like big parties. And so she would, uh, she would burst through the basement door trying to catch us in the act. And we would just be like sitting and reading. But she figured we had maybe just got the party out, you know, like just, just before she came down. And then one day I got, a, I got a package in the mail. It was an HDMI cord. So it was like kind of a circular shape. And she, she took this to, to be a drum. She thought I had gotten a drum in the mail. And then a couple weeks later, we're at a Christmas family gathering, and there was a gift exchange. I gave Carolyn's sister a CD, because that apparently was a thing that you did 10 years ago. And I give her a CD, and Carolyn's grandmother sees this, and she, this is what she's, she's piecing all of these things together. The house is shaking. Craig probably got a drum. Now he's giving out CDs. This is probably like a demo mix of his solo drumming downstairs that he's doing. Like, I'm like this recording artist now, just, just drumming away downstairs and handing out my CDs. She painted, she got this whole scenario, and it was incredible. I've never drummed in my life. Like, I'm not the closest thing to a recording artist. But that's what we do, right? We just, we kind of put these pieces together. The point is, it doesn't matter sometimes how well you communicate something or how well-intentioned you are, people can still misunderstand this is the nature of communication with language. People can still misunderstand. They can t- still, still twist what you say. They can still think the worst of you. In fact, sometimes they want to. <laughs> They're intent on that. This has happened throughout church history. You know, in the early church, there were rumors, maybe you've heard this before, but there were rumors that spread in the first few centuries that Christians were cannibals. 
You know why? Because they ate bread and drank juice that were representative of the body and the blood of their Savior. So people heard that. They said, oh, you guys are, you guys are cannibals. Uh, people also, the rumors also spread that Christians were incestuous because even Christian husbands and wives would call each other brother and sister in Christ. So legitimately, we have evidence from those early centuries of these rumors spreading that Christians were cannibals and incestuous. And you know what? I think we've seen a little bit of that even here at the bridge. Not, not about the incestuous or cannibalistic part, but um, some of you know we've had a couple of uh, negative public Google reviews recently. Uh, one of them was, was all about me. It was that I'm a, a disaster of a pastor. It's almost like I feel like that'd be a good rap name, except for like reversed. The pastor of disaster. And, um, and one, one of the things was that uh, because I'm not more like Joel Osteen, that was why I'm so terrible, which I don't know if you know who Joel Osteen is, but I kind of take that as a compliment. So anyways, the other, <laughs> the, other, the other Google review was somebody who visited our church on Christmas Eve. Uh, and we did baptisms on Christmas Eve with three teenagers and one adult get baptized. Uh, and so she went on Google and she just thought this was, this was a terrible thing. She said, um, uh, where is it? Over here. She said three children, they were teenagers, with three children and one adult were publicly submerged in a tub with water, baptizing them to a new life, trusting in Jesus and his resurrection. And so far, so good, right? You're like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what happened. That's great. But, she says, I saw religious indoctrination of innocent children presented as an event or a showcase. What a waste of a new, beautiful building. But at least she liked the building, right? Like, at least, at least the building's nice. Religious indoctrination of children presented as an event or a showcase. Is that what, is that what we believe happened on Christmas Eve? Absolutely not. Is that how we communicated it? Of course not. But that's how it was seen. That's how it was understood. That's what we're being accused of publicly on Google, right? Is they're doing religious indoctrination of, of children for show. See, again, the, the point is, you know, this is, this is what happens. You, you, you use words and they get misunderstood and twisted. Uh, and, and that's what happens to Paul in Thessalonica. People hear him talking about a Messiah, a kingdom, and they just right away assume it's a direct competition to Caesar. Now, what's maybe more challenging, is when this, when this misunderstanding comes from within God's people. Because in Acts chapter 17, it actually starts with the Jewish leaders. So, so Paul's talking about the Messiah. And uh, the Messiah, again, Hebrew word, comes up in the Old Testament at various parts. Uh, for example, in Psalm chapter 2, uh, which says the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, against his Christ. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. And, and so it was understood that this, this Messiah, this anointed one who became, you know, it became this, this promise, this hope for the future would be a deliverer, would be a, an actual earthly king in the line of David who would be like a military leader. He would rescue the Jews from foreign oppression. And Psalm 2 kind of makes it sound like that, right? The nations will be your inheritance. You're going you're to smash them to pieces, right? Like, like that's kind of how it was understood. Now that's not what Paul was saying. Very clearly Paul was not saying that. 
in Acts 17, but that's what they heard. And I think that same misunderstanding that Jesus the Messiah is somehow supposed to be tied to earthly kingdoms and powers continues on to this day. We've got that whole legacy of Christendom in, uh, in Western, in, in the West, right? From, from Constantine in the fourth century all the way through the, the medieval Europe, uh, Protestant Reformation, all the way to the present day, actually, uh, in, in weakened forms, but still, you know, like the King of England, who, like, some of you watch The Crown, like, it's really hard to get excited about this guy when you've watched The Crown, right? Like, I don't know, apparently he's the king, but anyways, uh, the King of England is officially the defender of the faith and the supreme governor of the Church of England. He's the king of England. He's also the king of the church in England, officially, right? That's, that's kind of how it goes. Um, I mean, that, that, that's kind of the idea with Christendom is that you tie these things so closely together. The church collects taxes to support the state church. The, church, the, the, the government kind of imposes Christian faith from the top down, kingdom of God, kingdom of the world, as closely tied as possible. And I would argue that we still see that happening, maybe especially in the United States and some of those movements where, where some, some Christians kind of want to make sure that America is a Christian nation from the top down. I actually think that's a misunderstanding of the nature of who Jesus is as king. But it goes back. It's, it's always been the case. It's always been confusing. It's always been prone to this. So let's talk. Let's talk about how how we are to understand what it means for Jesus to be king, from, from Acts 17 especially. Let's talk about first the nature of who Jesus is as king. Kings in the world, on the earth, generally seek after power for themselves. They, they generally kind of squash their, their, their enemies, their adversaries. It's, it's all about power. It's all about them being served, Right? But here's what Paul says about the Messiah. He says, he shows them how the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. He shows them from the scriptures. I don't know exactly where he went, but my guess is for the Messiah's suffering, he would have gone to a passage like Isaiah 50, uh, 54, or sorry, 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. In terms of um, the scriptures showing how the Messiah had to rise from the dead. I wonder if, if Paul would have gone to a passage like Hosea 6. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us. That we may live in his presence. The thing about these passages, especially Isaiah 53 is that the Jews did not really know what to do with this. They didn't know, what, what, what are these passages talking about? And they never made the connection that these passages that speak about this mysterious servant figure could have anything to do with the promises of a Messiah, of a king. It never entered their mind. And this is one of the incredible things in the early church is this connection between Messiah and suffering servant in Isaiah. Paul says, I know who that's about. It's about Jesus, the Messiah, the king, suffering, 
dying in our place, bearing our transgressions. You, I mean, you, I know, like for those of us who have been in church for a long time, we just kind of take it for granted. But, but can you understand how incredibly countercultural this is? Kings don't do things like that, right? Kings come to be served, not to serve and give their lives as a ransom for many. It's so, so counter everything rulers and powers are supposed to be about. And, and every time we see that, we see the disciples struggling with this in the, in the Gospels over and over again. Jesus tells them, guys, just so you know, I am going to have to die. And they're like, no, don't say that. Say, I'm really going to have to die. This is really going to have to happen. And every time Jesus has the opportunity to grab earthly power, he doesn't. Like, who does that? You want to be president? No. What? Right? Like he, uh, in, in, in Luke chapter 4, you've got the whole temptation with Satan. And Satan goes, look, I got all these kingdoms of the earth. You can have authority over all of them. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going that way. In John chapter 6, uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And uh, the crowds, just minds blown. This guy's amazing. Let's make him king. And Jesus knows that's what they're thinking. He knows that they want to make him king by force. And so he runs. He retreats, withdraws by himself. He's not, he's not going that way. Even when he finally rides into Jerusalem to shouts and acclamations of praise that he's the coming king. What does he ride in on? That stupid donkey. Not a, not a war horse, not some majestic animal. He rides in on a donkey just over and over again. The nature of his, of his character is so different from that of earthly kings. And then, and then you look at the nature of, of his mission, what he, what he seeks to do. Again, earthly kings, they seek to conquer territory and, and win you know, win wars against foreign nations and, and kind of establish themselves, win elections if you're, you know, prime minister, president, whatever it is, but it's about increasing power. Whereas um, Jesus's mission seems to be quite different. In, in Acts chapter one, Jesus has, um, he's died, he's, he's risen again. He's conquered death, which I would argue is a much harder thing to conquer than a foreign nation. And the disciples come to him and they go, Jesus, is, is, is this the time? Is this when you're finally going to establish a political kingdom? Take that rule for yourself. And Jesus basically says to them, you guys are asking the wrong question. Instead, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait. And I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit on you. And you're going to be my disciples to the ends of the earth. That's what I want you to do. I am not here to establish an earthly kingdom. I am here to send you out as witnesses. Same deal in Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you're a disciple, you're thinking, finally, he's getting it. Finally, here we go. This is good news. It's time to go. The same kind of deal. Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's just like... You're not getting it, guys. This is, this is not the thing that you think it is. You've got a different job. You've got the job of being my ambassadors, of sharing the good news about who I am as king. That's the nature of the mission. 
And then you can look at the nature of, of the, and that's what Paul and Silas are doing in Thessalonica, right? They're, they're not there to overthrow Caesar. They are there to share the good news about a very different kind of king, which raises this, this last kind of aspect or category, which is the nature of the kingdom itself, especially in relationship to other earthly kingdoms. So in Acts 17, this is the, the charge, is that, uh, they're promoting a king who is in competition with Caesar. And this isn't the first time this had come up. When Jesus is on trial before Pilate in John 18, this is what the Jewish leaders keep on shouting over and over again. Hey, Pilate, you don't do something about this guy. You're no friend of Caesar because he's claiming to be king. And so in John 18, Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus is saying, we're, we're talking about something in an entirely different realm, an entirely different thing here. And, and Pilate says, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Here Jesus goes again. I came not to do the thing most kings do. I came to testify to the truth, to make the truth known. I am not in direct competition with Caesar, is, is, what, is what Jesus is saying there. And, and you kind of get that in Acts 17 even. So, so at the end, the, the, the Thessalonian authorities want Paul and Silas out of there. And what do they do? They don't go, well, forget you guys. We've got a different king. We'll do whatever we want. Instead, they actually submit to that request. They leave. They, they obey, right? They, they, they leave Thessalonica. They submit to the authorities, which is what Paul says in Romans 13. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Not only are, is Jesus and Caesar not in direct competition with each other, but apparently Caesar's authority is actually given to him by God, it's, it's that, 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 that he, that there are rulers, earthly rulers is ordained by God. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy, he urges that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving may be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Let's just put this out there. Paul did not live a quiet life, right? This is, he says this, he's, he's a guy who writes this who has been beaten and unjustly imprisoned by the authorities. And he says, pray for them. Submit to them. They're put there by God. I mean, how, how does that work? How could, how could he say that? How did Paul understand how these kingdoms related to each other? Here's an analogy that I don't, I don't know. what We're going to stretch it pretty far, and I don't, I don't know how much it'll work, but we'll try it out. Here's an analogy. Uh, babysitting. How many of you have ever been a babysitter before? A lot of you. I was, I was not good. I was not good. Uh, there was one family I babysat as a, as a teenager, as a high schooler. And mostly I would try to get the kids to bed early so that I could play Madden football on the, on the PlayStation. That was one of my main goals. Uh, one time they, they, they decided I should make dinner for the kids. And so they left me a box of macaroni and cheese, believing that anybody with a brain would be able to make craft dinner. Uh, they were wrong. Or I don't have a brain. I don't know what it is. But I cooked up the noodles, and then I, I mixed in the cheese and the milk and the butter, stirred it all up, and dished it out. 
and it was the blandest craft dinner you've ever tasted because apparently draining the water after uh, cooking the noodles is a fairly important step. That had never occurred to me. So I just kind of dumped everything in there with the water, mixed up, I'm like, I don't know why it tastes so bad, I have no idea. So anyways, I was a pretty, pretty bad babysitter. <laughs> but when you're a kid and you, and you have a babysitter, uh, you should listen to the babysitter, right? Because the babysitter really does have authority in the home. And that authority is given to the babysitter by the parents, right? The parents have entrusted the babysitter. And so the babysitter does have authority. You should generally listen to that and respect that. Now, the babysitter's authority is limited. It's for a limited period of time. It's in a limited kind of number of areas. If you've got if you've got big questions about what kind of person you are to be, about big moral choices, you're probably not going to your you know, high school doofus like me, teenager, uh, with those questions as a babysitter, right? You're, if you've got good parents, you're gonna go to your parents with those things. You're gonna take your cues about how to live from your parents, not your babysitter. And there might be times where the babysitter tells you to do something that is totally contrary to what your parents have said. That's a dicey situation, that's tricky, but I would suggest you should probably go with your parents, right? Because they've kind of got the overarching authority here. And this is where we're gonna stretch this metaphor beyond recognition, but if your babysitter started to claim to be your parent <laughs> and started taking that kind of authority, that level of authority for him or herself, now you've got a real sticky situation on your hands, right? You might need to call your babysitter out and say, I don't think that's really who you are. But for the most part, the babysitter has this limited authority and you submit to it, you listen to it. And I think that's kind of how the kingdoms of this world relate to the kingdom of God. That, that God has, has granted earthly powers a limited authority for a limited period of time, and generally speaking, we submit to that. It's not a direct competition. Parents and babysitters should not be in direct competition with each other. They're two totally different things, right? Two different kinds of authority, two different kinds of relationships, I think that's the way it is with Jesus and with Caesar or the president or prime minister, whoever it is. You know, we've got both authorities. We submit to both, but, but they're totally different kinds of things. And in the end, only one is worthy of your worship, your allegiance, your undying loyalty. And that's, that's what I want to leave with you today. I, I just, as I kind of went through this, I just, I want to bring us, and I love, I love what Jaylene did earlier, just with bringing us back to the feet of Jesus and recognizing him as king. That's what I want to do here at the end of this as well. Because, because when you think about who Jesus is as king, he is, he's just in a category of his own. There's, there's, no, there's no comparison at all. I mean, we read in the scriptures that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and that he reigns forever and ever. Can Justin Trudeau say that? I don't think so. Jesus is the one through whom all things were made, the one for whom all things were made, the one who holds all things together. Can King, King Charles say that? Hope not. <laughs> you know, Jesus is the one who's, who's won a victory, not over a, a rival political power in a democratic election, but over the evil one, over Satan himself. He's the one who has conquered, 
Not just a little piece of land here or there. He has conquered sin. He's conquered death. In terms of his majesty, his power, his magnificence, there is nothing in this world that can come close to him. And yet it's not just his greatness. It's his, it's his goodness. It's his character. As we've seen, Jesus, despite being the one at whose name every knee will bow, is the one who went to the lowest place who died that, that death, that shameful death on a cross, willingly for you and for me. He's a king who loves, a king who is humble, a king who gives himself for his people, who didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And unlike other kings who kind of exert and, empower and, and, and impose their, their power from the top down, Jesus, he beckons and invites and calls us to come under his gracious reign. So I, I want to invite us to worship him. I want to invite us to, serve, to, to, to obey him, to serve him in obedience. See, you can't really, if Jesus is king, if he's that kind of king, then, then it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us to say, okay, Jesus, you can have one day a week, one morning a week. I'm watching the Super Bowl today. You can't have that. Uh, you can have the morning. You can have, you can have this little part of my life. You can have this little bit of my finances. You know, I'll listen to you in this and that and this kind of area. It doesn't make sense. If Jesus is king in the way that Paul said he is, he's worthy of it all. Worthy of our entire hearts, worthy of our entire lives to submit to him, to surrender to him in, the, in, in everything. So obedience, that's a big one. And, and then the mission that we have. If Jesus is king in this way and we are his people, then we've got a job to do. And it's not, it's not to change society from the top down. It's to change it from the bottom up. It's, it's, it's right, it starts right here. It starts in the church. It starts in our hearts. It starts in our relationships. It starts in our workplaces, in our families, as we are the ambassadors of this king, showing people that there is a different way of living in this world. There is another king that we bow the knee to. We are pointing people from the babysitter to the father and saying to people, look, look who he is. Look what he's done in my life. So in everything we do, in word and deed, we are telling people, I belong to King Jesus. Worship, obedience, mission. It's the outworking of what it means for Jesus to be king.